Darren Mort grew up in a violent and dysfunctional family and says he didn't really have much of a childhood and that every night he had a huge amount of regret waiting for his father's car to pull up in the driveway. His father was actually a Hawthorne VFL legend, but an angry and abusive man who had come from a pretty lousy household himself, and he was scarred by his own difficult past. He eventually sent the family into bankruptcy when Darren was just a teenager. Yet somehow, Darren still gunned his year 12, made it into law science at Melbourne University and has since gone on to be a renowned criminal and family law barrister and has made it his personal quest to understand how his childhood cannot define the man he is today and that he needs to repel and not repeat the damage of his past. With nearly one in two marriages ending in divorce and 48% of those having kids involved, with 65% of those kids exposed to family violence, Darren is on a mission to change this. This was an amazing conversation. Like, Darren's background was so complex once he started getting into it. Um, It's really quite a remarkable story of a child's survival in the face of a domestic violence household. And also what that little person does as they grow up into an adult and how they want to change the world through their own lived experience. Totally. And I think one of the things that I personally like found really interesting about Darren's insights was that we all grow up and only really make sense of ourselves and our parents once we have the leap of years behind us and for Darren it wasn't until he was in his 40s I think he said that he started to sort of understand his father's dysfunctions and disappointments. Yeah it's a true story of being a parent, being a human, being a barrister all rolled into one. Let's Mm. have a listen. You say your early life wasn't that easy, that you actually grew up in a dysfunctional family. Can you tell us a bit about that? It sounds a bit dramatic, doesn't it? Um, but it was when I look back. I didn't have much of a childhood, not that I go into a corner and boo-hoo my life, but it's it was difficult because um, my father was a VFL legend. He played for Hawthorne and um, my mother and father were both very young and my father used to frequent the football club more often than he should be um, as attending at home to his family. And my mother suffered as a result of that. And I recall um, violence in our household. I recall my mother being shoved up against a wall with my father's hands around her throat, Um, things of that nature, which for a six-year-old child, I think I was at the time, is very hard to compute. Um, In fact, I think I thought at the time he killed my mother. And because he took me to my grandfather's place after that, so I wasn't sure whether when I was coming home whether my mum would still be alive. So that had a huge impact. And as I grew up, I became more protective of my mother. And of course, that related, um, that um, really ended up me being the meat between the sandwich and being um, physically chastised for that. So there was a huge amount of regret waiting for my father's car to pull up in the driveway every night, which shouldn't happen um, under any circumstances. And as a result of that, um, I have a clear, in my own mind, a clear understanding of the journey people travel with family violence and the impact that it has on them and more particularly on their children. So in my HSC year, my last year at school, which was delightful, um, my father lost everything. He had a lot of money, lost everything. 
um, through bad business choices. And I remember the sheriff coming around to our house, stamping our furniture. And I, I said to the sheriff at one stage, "You can't take that. It's my desk. I've got I've got my exams coming up in three months." So I ended up moving in with my cousin, and my mother went to live with my two sisters in um, in Blackburn with with um, with her mother. And it was a looking back, it was a fairly traumatic time. But I must have, as a child, compartmentalised a lot. I skipped a grade at school. I was very young, probably socially inadequate at the time. I was only sixteen when I did my HSC. And but I managed to compartmentalise enough to be able to get through what I had to get through, um, and I did. And I had um, amazing supports around me. Like my grandparents were amazing. My mother was a mother lioness. She was amazing. But, yeah, it was a tough time. When you say you compartmentalise, can you can you think back to what was actually happening for you at that time? What was going on? How did you do that? Well, <laughs> I think thanks to my grandmother, um, she used to sit me down when I was a young kid watching Perry Mason. I don't know whether you remember that show. but um, And I always thought, gee, I'd love, to, I'd love to be in a courtroom. And so I always wanted to be a lawyer. So... I was totally focused on getting the marks I needed to get into the university course. So I think that's what drove me at the time. Um, I wasn't great at sport. Um, That happened – well, I wasn't great at sport after school, but I certainly – I became a fitness leader and did all sorts of stuff after school. But I I think it was mainly because I was socially inadequate at school because, A, I had a father who was a VFL football player, but secondly – so there was was a level of expectation of me as a child um, that I'd be a footballer, and I wasn't built. I I just – I used to be in the front row of all the photos at school. I didn't grow till I left school, which was weird. And – so there was that expectation upon me and what I was good at was studying, learning and getting results. So that's something that that I grabbed hold of, um, something that I could achieve that was attainable and something that um, I felt proud about. So I think that's why I compartmentalised things. I think I was just totally driven to... Um, to get into university to do the course that I did. I ended up doing law science at Melbourne Uni and I remember it was really tough because I, I moved out of home at one stage with three medical students in Carlton and I was cleaning toilets at Kerry Grammar at the time at the at this school because I couldn't get a bar job because I was too young. And so I did that for a while. And I remember music at the time too because often I hear songs on the radio that you know, trigger memories for me. And so, yeah, so I, I did that and eventually I worked at pubs and I um, worked for six years as a barman and met a whole group of guys that are, you know, really close mates now. So that was, yeah, that was good. Yeah, so the funny thing was I I don't feel, from what I know of attachment theory now, Sabina knows a thousand times more than me, but from what I know of attachment theories working in the family court and that, I don't think I was terribly attached to my father. Um, I am to my mother, but not my father. And when I was about about 22, uh, 24 or something, I moved down to the country for a year. Dad had a pub down in Morwell that he was managing and my um, girlfriend, now wife, moved down with me. We stayed on this farm, which was incredible time. And I think because I was desperate to find that attachment that I never had, but I never found it, which was a bit frustrating. Attachment to your dad. Yeah, yeah. because it never happened. So 
that level of attachment that I had with my mother was never replicated with my father. How would you have known if you if you were meaningfully attached to your dad? I can only do that in hindsight. Or in hindsight, how would you have known? Um, that's a really good question. I think that saying absence makes a heart grow fonder, I think that's one thing. I think if my mother is is absent from my life, um, that means a lot to me, that, that absence um, causes me to long to see her, where the same feelings weren't there towards my father. And in fact, the other thing too, was that I had to overcome feelings of remorse for the fact that I didn't have a relationship with him. Um, there was a part of me that despised him um, and there was a part of me that hadn't forgiven him. And so all that became all that became very complex and I had to deal with all that. And he died when I was 32, so 1996. And I don't think I... I don't think I came to terms with it till probably my late 40s, to be quite frank, even after he died. And, and what does coming to terms with it mean? Forgiving. Mm. Yeah. Forgiving him. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. And let go. Mm. Yeah. When you reflect now on him and that, that childhood and, and some of the moments that are coming up for you are obviously really powerful and, and difficult, in that process of forgiveness. How, is the story changed then about him? Has the narrative changed that you tell yourself about the man that he was? A little because there were good times as well. There's always good times, good times with, with bad times. But yeah, so yes, it has in the sense that I do look for the, um, for the good times. Yeah. And it, you know, it gets back to um, this whole behavioural thing, how it it's cyclical, it's repetitive, it's learned behaviour, and um, I suppose the forgiveness comes in in part because, my, like, my father came from a really lousy household. Terrible, you know, terrible household. And so he, he, he didn't have the insight to move forward and learn from that experience and take him to a place um, which was different than his own father, you know, and how he behaved. So you can make sense of his behaviour from his own personal experiences, but that doesn't mean that it didn't impact you in difficult and painful ways. Yeah. Yeah. And then I often talk about the pendulum swing between either repeat or repel. And we see this, we're talking about intergenerational family patterns where we either repeat where we've been, like your dad sounded like he repeated some of what his experience was, or we repel and fling so far the other way and say, I'll I'll never repeat that behaviour and I'll find a different way of parenting. It sounds like you were even aware in your younger years that you would try not to replicate some of these damaging experiences for sure for sure but we had we had this amazing um priest a mentor 
when I say priest, he wasn't a typical priest. He was a one of the most intelligent men that I knew. He's passed away now. Um, Angelo was his name. He used to drive a Harley Davidson and take us kids on dinks. And he was a theologian. He used to lecture in theology and stuff. But he used to he used to say to us um, kids growing up that um, you can learn by your parents' mistakes, but then unfortunately. You go into the world and you make a whole set of your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, which is unavoidable. But hopefully the mistakes you made are, make, are measured by the learning experience you've had with your parents so that, A, you don't go down exactly the same route. Um, and secondly, um, those mistakes you make are tempered by past experience and that knowledge. So how have you made changes as a father yourself? Well... Well, repel, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one really simple thing is um, we have meals around the table at night. Um, we don't have dinner on our laps. We don't go to our rooms. We all communicate. Yeah, we ask each other how our day has been, whether it's been crappy or good. And I think communication's king. Um, leaving aside respect for your partner and the fact that you you know, physical or emotional abuse is a is a no-go zone. So my wife came from a very functional um, nuclear family, um, very beige, mm-hmm. um, but nice beige. What colour What colour was your family if hers was beige? No, it'd be purple. And <laughs> 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 not spiritual purple. <laughs> uh, my wife's uh, like a, she's like a mother lioness. She's amazing. So looks after her cubs. So part of your repel cycle was choosing a partner that would help you change this intergenerational pattern. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you picked good in beige, good beige. Good beige. (laughs) There's a spectrum of beige. (laughs) Fifty shades of. Fifty shades of beige. And so you're now working uh, and probably it's an easy one plus one that you have gone into family law. uh, Well, well, you say that, but it was weird because I never intended going on family law. I um, I worked principally in criminal law, and um, when I, when I had that year in the country with my dad, I was I was a second year out solicitor. A judge came down from Melbourne on circuit. He said at one of the social functions, "How about coming back with me for two years and being my associate?" So I did, and um, I sat with him as an associate for two years, and he. Um, principally did criminal trials. Um, I worked on the sentencing manual um, with a number of other judges in the county court, being a research assistant for over those two years. I then went to the bar, became a barrister, and I mostly did, for the first three or four years, I mostly did crime. I had a bit of commercial, tiny bit of family, and mostly crime. So family law found me. I had a couple of friends who were in family law firms, and they said, oh, how about how about some work in the family law field? And I went, oh, okay, if, if that's what you think, yeah, I'll do anything, you know, I've got a mortgage and some kids. And um, so I started getting work down the family court and started getting more work and more work and then I was less available for my criminal law solicitors to brief me and then I ended up in the family court full-time and I've been there for, what, now full-time about 27 years. Wow, a so, long time. So you would have seen a lot... Um, of family issues, obviously, over that time. Do you have faith in the family court? Ah, um, I have faith in its intentions. In terms of outcomes, I don't have much faith um, because I was talking to a lawyer about this the other day. No matter how hard us lawyers 
try to work things out for clients and how no matter how hard we've got good intentions, um, unfortunately the system works against us. And the system works against us because we have um, extraordinary delays, we have extraordinary lack of resources, um, we have various levels of experience in judicial offices, um, we have a counselling section that is just so depleted with family consultants at the court, um, it's terrible. And so... Yes, so I, I do have faith in a system that works and did work for a long time um, until these relationship centres came into play. Um, the, the system has seems to have gone downhill with the depletion of money provided by the government, both governments, Liberal and Labor, in terms of really really focusing its efforts on the family court and not trying to find other external means to fix families. Like what? What would some alternatives look like? Um, well, there are some good alternatives um, which have evolved over time. Collaborative law is one um, where lawyers get together and source out service providers, psychologists, family consultants, valuers, all sorts of people. That that works, but again, it's got to have both parties wanting that to work. I think there are some really good child psychologists around um, that can help problems, um, family therapists that are around that can help people. I think resources like uh, your books and films and apps and podcasts like this, I think they can really help people um, in terms of getting them thinking about outcomes that they desire, mm. you know? Is, is part of the issue, I mean, if you think about someone who's in that vortex of, of hurt and blame and pain that's occurring during a separation or divorce, it's very difficult for them to come up out of that and even, um, you know, notice the needs of their children or put them above that. H how do we help parents to do that? Yeah, well, the, yeah, that's a good question because the, the clients I see are their emotion, they're emotionally so vulnerable, so vulnerable, and they're at a stage where even um, their vulnerability impacts their thought processes, impacts their parenting. They've got financial pressures as well um, with the court system and with just surviving, you know. And high levels um, of anger. And high levels of anger, mm. you know. And a lot of clients I see, you might see one client who's done the, the 100 metre sprint and is at the 90 metre mark ready for it all to be over, yet you've got one person back at the starting post still very angry, you know, feeling very vulnerable. So it's really difficult. And I think the only way, or not the only way, but one of the major ways around that is outside the court system, and that's by employing good psychologists to try and bridge the gap, to try and get some communication levels up, because every, every court case beneath the surface bubble issues and it's the issues that prevent settlement mm -hmm. and it prevents people moving on. If you can attack those issues, like in a mediation, uh, issues-based mediation are the best mediations because the parties sit, sometimes they haven't seen each other for a year or two, they sit opposite each other and they tell the mediator why they're there, what they want out of it, 
and what are the issues for them. And sometimes it's the first time the other party's ever heard that. Mm. So communications start to commence. And as a result of that, you, it's like pushing a, a beach ball underwater. You know, you force it down and the further you force it down, the higher it pops up. And then after a while, you're forcing it down not so far and it doesn't pop up as far. And that's what these issues are like. If you're addressing these issues, the beach ball doesn't pop up above the surface um, as high as it would otherwise. And yet typically the dynamics um, pre-separation continue with us post-separation and they're really yeah. mirroring each other. So if there's high levels of conflict or poor levels of communication or poor capacity to communicate, then we take that with us post-separation. That's right. We can't expect that now that we've separated that we're going to find new ways of being in each other's presence or navigating differences of opinion. Yeah. So how do we deal with that? It's almost a, it's a psychological question, I know, but I'm interested in, in your you know, almost three decades of experience. I think what we need to do is we need to give each party a pocket full of dignity. Mm. You know, that's what I think. I had a Chinese client once upon a time. He was a surgeon, um, lived in a mansion in a well-known street in Melbourne, had lots of money, and his wife... Um, it was a bitter divorce and she kept asking for items from the house and it got to his grandfather's grand piano and he said, look, just give it to her. And I said, look, I can't give it to her. It's, your, it's a family heirloom. And he said, no, just give it to her and I'll explain why. I'll, I'll translate this old Chinese proverb and it says, it, it translates as this, um, always leave the door slightly ajar to allow dignity to pass through. And... He, he said to me at the time, I need to give her that dignity so that she can move on. Mm. Mm. And I wonder if he felt he parked something of himself in that process or if that liberated him further. No, I think he'd got to a stage of acceptance and I think it liberated him mm. um, in that case. Not mm. always, but in that case it did, mm. you know. So I think people, we all, we all want a sense of dignity, and uh, we all need a, you know, dollop of respect. And I think when people have been in relationships for a long time, they owe it to each other and particularly to their children. Mm. Mm. So talking of which, we know there are very high rates of divorce. It's almost one in two, two that yeah. end in divorce. And a very high percentage of that, in of those divorces, involve children. Yeah. So how can we put the needs of our children first? Yeah, well, on those stats, I think one in nearly one in two divorces, um, 48% of those relationships have children, and 65% of those children are exposed to family violence. So they're incredible um, rates, really. How do we do it? Um, we have the courage to, to prioritise the needs of our kids. That's what we do. What does that mean when, when I'm in a world of pain, when I'm angry, when I'm resentful, when I feel hardly done by, when I feel hurt and wounded? How do I do that? Okay, so we all know that kids are made up of, this is how kids look at it simply from what I know from a psychological point of view, they're made up of their mums and their dads. So if mum's got the kids and starts bagging dad, it's like the kid's getting receiving you know arrows into his or her little heart um, in terms of what she's saying about the dad. Right? It impacts on them. So how do we do that? Sometimes I think parents need to look at their children as being made up of each of them. And 
when they are saying things, stop themselves in the path and say, well, hang on. Yeah, um, that's not a good idea. I often laugh when I get a, a mother, I had a mother recently where she's so angry and so hateful against the father. And I said, show me a picture of your child. And she showed me a picture of her daughter and the daughter was a spitting mm. image of the father. Mm. And she said, yes, I know, I know, she looks like him. And I said, but don't you think every time you say something bad about him, how it's impacting on her, particularly given that she looks like him? Mm. Anyhow, so... All we can do is hopefully change people's behaviours. Um, but it's hard. It's not easy when people are so angry. But kids are our, kids are our most precious gift. And I think if people are embracing that, no one, no matter how good or bad a parent you are, no one wants bad for their child. Mm. No one wants their child to grow up emotionally, psychologically or physically um, hindered or hampered in any way so i think if you focus people on kids i think that's the answer i've got a question for both of you actually when is it worth keeping trying to salvage a relationship when it's breaking before you end up in in court when you can actually work your way back to one another or or when do you make the call to say this is not tenable Mm. I mean, the short answer to that is if there is violence in, and it, there seems no light at the end of the tunnel, that's a, a pretty big red flag for out. But my observation of many couples who are separating or in high conflict is that I always picture tram tracks and never are two people at the same point on these parallel tracks at so the same true. time. Yeah. And usually one is further along the pathway of either um, level of distress or low levels of hope or often by the time they come to counselling and the stats tell us that we wait an average of seven years to seek couples counselling, seven years of tough times before we go to a couples counsellor. So often by the time they walk in my door, one of them has made a decision that they want out. And so it's really very difficult for a couple to salvage, to use your words, Mads, a relationship when one is choosing not to. We need to. So the the other part of the, the answer to that question is we need to be motivated And by motivated, I think we need a high level of hope or some level of hope that we can reconnect Mm. in the relationship. And you're willing to do the work. That's the motivation Mm. piece. So we need the motivation Mm. and we need the hope. And when one person has their foot out the door already, it's very difficult to garner hope and motivation. Mm. And the other thing I find, I've had a couple of friends recently who have separated after 20 years of relationship where the partner leaving hasn't paid the partner left behind the respect of letting that partner know why the marriage has gone down the Zuma or even um, employed a psychologist or gone to a relationship centre to debrief, Mm -hmm. debrief and address the grief Mm. that that person left behind Mm. suffers. And I think that's really disrespectful of people because at one point in time, I say this to all my clients, you love that woman or you love that man and you got together and you decided to get together to acquire um, capital growth in your investments and your time together, but also to nurture and nourish children in that relationship. And each other. And each other, importantly, Mm. because each other has to come first. It's the old 
dropping the oxygen mask from the plane, doesn't mm. it? You've got to give that oxygen mask to your partner first before and yourself before you give it to your kid and um, that's the way it goes. You've got to nurture each other because if you don't do that, you lose each other along the path mm. because life is so busy, particularly when kids come into play. So well, yeah. I, I see a lot of relationships that, you know, the one, one or the other is waiting for the kids to finish school before they split. Why? Why? Mm. Well, also probably after the bubble of love when you first get together with your partner and then you settle into the daily pattern of life with all its complexity and ordinariness, then things start to come undone, become undone uh, in that stage of life. And then if we think going back to what we spoke about earlier, which is that you have these early indelible things that are laid down ar- around the yeah. way you behave in a family, well, then those cracks start to come out. And also we have two sets of indelible ways. So we've got yours yep. and mine and the combination is a, often a perfect storm. Mm. And, and like yeah, we talked about with, with beautiful Miss Beige, we tend to pick partners unconsciously. I think, that are purple. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that are purple. That, that help us to work on our wounds. And sometimes it's yeah. really painful and we think, I don't want that from you anymore because it's too painful. Yet we chose them often for those reasons unconsciously in the first place. Yeah. But I would say also around the uh, you know end of a relationship that it's still worth going to counselling at the end of a relationship and changing the goal of um, we're not here to salvage the relationship, but we're here to create a platform of respect and hope post-divorce and dignity and dignity because we will be in this relationship in a new way for the rest of our lives as co-parents yeah i'll tell you what um a happy ending to my father's story was that he was diagnosed with cancer and he lived two years post-diagnosis and what he did was before he passed away he and my mother went to counseling mm-hmm as, uh, they had been separated? Mm, but good. They, they had a friendship mm. and they developed a friendship. They both remarried. Mum's happily married. Dad was happily married. So there was a, a changing process for my father along the line. He got grabbed some insight. But for him to do that to my mother before he passed away was incredible. Mm. Incredible for my mother to have that peace. Peace. Mm. And for him to say sorry. And incredible for him too to have that insight and that desire to do that and to leave this planet having some peace. And the call to action there is how do we do that before we get diagnosed with cancer? Exactly. How do we leave it till too late, too sorry, whatever? Yeah. Yeah. It's those moments that often catapult us into self-realisation. Yeah. We do a lot of talk in court. We do a lot of talk outside court. I just think we need to employ better resources. Um, there was a bloke, Sabina and I know, who had this theory that the TAC commercials um, were in people's faces on billboards and advertisements and it had a significant impact on the reduction of people drinking and driving. And I think that we need to probably do a similar thing with family breakdowns. Um, we need to have it in people's faces. We need to have more sessions like um, Q&A sessions on social issues on television. You know, we we just need to throw more resources at it because there's so many people hurting out there 
and just, you know, everyday hardworking people, not people who live in, you know, million-dollar homes. Those people suffer as well. But I'm just talking ordinary, average, everyday Aussies suffering out there because they don't have the resources. And some of them, I've had two clients this week, can't afford to go to family lawyers because they cost too much money. Mm. You know, I'm not critical of family lawyers for charging, so they they should for their professional service. But some people can't afford it, so they use their houses to pay their lawyers, you know, what they've both worked hard for. There's got to be a better way. Darren, we like to finish our podcast with the same question for all our guests. Oh, do you? Yeah. We recognise that being human is messy and we're interested in your thoughts on who does human well. Who does human well? Wow. I think who does human well would have to be up there with someone like President Obama. He had the top job in the country. He's got a beautiful family. He's eloquent. His heart's in the right place. He speaks to all different races of people. And I think he does human well. Mm, Beautiful. So we want to say thank you to the adult Darren and I want to (laughs) say thank you to the six-year-old Darren who also joined us today. Oh, thank you. And I want to say... Thank you also for your time and any colour is a good (laughs) colour. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us. So what we really hope is that these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe a few others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.